You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Audrey Claire Farley and Dr. Sarah Mosliner. Dr. Farley is a historian of 20th century American fiction and culture and teaches at St. Mary's University. She is the author of The Unfit Heiress, The Tragic Life and Scandalous Sterilization of Anne Cooper Hewitt. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New Republic, The Washington Post, and many other outlets. Dr. Mosliner is a lecturer of philosophy and religion at Central Michigan University. She is the founder of the After Purity Project. Today, we will talk with them about Lillian Smith's influence on their work, the intersections of race, religion, and gender, and much more. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, I appreciate having y'all. I mean, I connected with y'all probably about a month or two ago when I read Dr. Farley's piece about the, S- the Southern Baptist Convention sexual abuse report. And then... I don't remember how, but we just started talking a little bit and turns out y'all have read Lillian Smith and were, have been influenced by her work and knew about her, which happens more often than you would actually think. A lot of people that I actually have on the podcast, that's kind of how it comes about is finding something on Twitter or social media and then starting to talk and then finding out that they know who Lillian Smith is and how much her work has kind of impacted them. So that's where we need to start because you've each expressed your indebtedness to Lillian Smith and her work. So can you talk a little bit about when you discovered her work and how her work inspires your own thinking and writing? Sure. I can start if that's okay, Sarah. Um, I first came across mention of Smith in Jane Daly's book, which was written in 2020. It's called White Fright, The Sexual Panic at the Heart of America's Racist History. So as you can glean from that title, It also examines how fears of Black sexuality shape race relations in America. And Daly introduced a section of Killers of the Dream, which is probably the most cited passage. It's where Smith describes the sanctification of the white woman in the South. This is the passage that begins, the more trails the white man made to backyard cabins, the higher he raised his white wife on her pedestal when he returned to the big house. The higher the pedestal, the less he enjoyed her, whom he had put there for statues, after all, are only nice things to look at. And then she goes on to talk about how eventually white man projected his desire onto the black body. And I was just blown away by that block quote, that passage. And I think what struck me about it, well, there were a few things. First of all, the literariness of it, the busyness of it, that she has so many balls in the air, the race, sex, sin, spiral, she calls it. Mm -hmm. And uh, just the deep insight into the white psyche coming from a writer who was still writing mid-century. I didn't realize that there were white writers from that time in our history, let alone from the South, who were so aware of the dynamics of whiteness. I remember being in grad school and hearing about whiteness studies and how it it was presented to me as being this really new novel field of study. And so to think that she was doing this work 
decades before really interested me. So I would say that those are, those are the aspects of her work that really inspire me. Um, I'm also very interested in how racial anxieties are expressed as sexual anxieties, the way that theology operates to baptize both. Um, And I believe too, that even with these academic attempts to redress the imbalance, even with things like whiteness studies, the gaze when we're talking about race is still focused on bodies of color uh, because whiteness is invisible. And Sarah has made this, this point really well um, in conversations I've had with her, that this is a function of white supremacy, that as you know, whites are socialized to overvalue the mind. And so in not talking about the, the way that slavery and Jim Crow are still playing out on the white body is one of the ways that, that white supremacy perpetuates itself. Well, of um, course, that's, that's one of Smith's really, I think, important intersections too. I have a quote too, but I'll read it after, after Sarah goes, but that kind of reframing of that discussion, she says, instead of the Negro problem or the black problem, it should be the white problem. Right. Mm -hmm. And she's saying that in killers of the dream. And like in the forties, she's saying that this should be, we should focus on this because this is what is causing these issues. So I think that you, you said that whiteness studies, of course, is something you heard about in grad school. And of course, that's something we think of as newer, but I think of African-American authors who were doing the same thing earlier with, mm-hmm. you know, white life novels, basically. So like Frank Yerby and Alice Childress or um, I forgot who else I'm even thinking about, but but um, Arna Bontomps, authors who were writing about white characters and dealing with this from a white perspective and the effects that it has on, on whites, right? Mm-hmm. What were you going to say, Sarah? I apologize. No, it's fine. I'm just, yeah, it's, I, I, I'm thinking about, um, sort of the own, the beginning of my own uh, career. And I was introduced to critical whiteness studies early on and actually wrote my master's thesis on, on whiteness in feminist theology. And, um, and so, and of course at the time it was, it was simply an intellectual exercise because I was learning how to be a scholar. Um, and, um, but, But now I'm, you know, I'm really grateful that that was sort of where I started because I think it is, is, it has become now even a more essential framework for, um, for the work that I do, certainly. Um, And so in coming back to my, um, uh, to my current research on evangelical purity culture, um, the notion of whiteness has just become front and center because this is very much a project of, um, of white racial identity and maintaining sort of white, um, white racial dominance, not just um, with sort of the, the particular role of womanhood, um, but also the family as a whole. And I was introduced, you know, so I was well into this work um, and uh, one of my colleagues, um, Heather White, um, said, hey, you need to read Lillian Smith if you haven't. She sent me a PDF of a chapter that she, um, uh, that she uses um, in one of her classes. And I'm, I was, I'm assuming the three ghost stories. Yes, yes. That's what I was just looking at. I believe so, yeah. And, um, and I was like, oh, oh, wow. Okay, this is, 
Yeah. So, um, so yes. So I have been really, um, it was, it's always, well, one, it helped me be like, okay, I'm not just sort of stumbling around in the dark here. Like there's actual, you know, precedent for people thinking through this, especially around white womanhood, especially around sexualized racial violence. And this is part of what I'm trying to do with my current research is situate it historically and think about exactly what Audrey was saying, the way that, you know, we think about sex in the United States is so deeply racialized. And I think we've barely even begun to think about that everything from um sex education to you know to comprehensive sex education to abstinence only sex education that that we have you know after the civil rights movement we've moved into um sort of this colorblind haze you know which has really um put us i should say by we white people especially um and so it's made it impossible to um to see how whiteness functions and so now that i feel like we're we're kind of slowly building that up and again you know as both of you mentioned this is something that you know people of color are, are much more attuned to and have written about and articulated because they have to understand it um, for the sake of survival and their own thriving, whereas it benefits white people to ignore it, right? So to have someone like Lillian Smith, uh, a woman of who, I mean, I get the sense from reading her work. Um, I haven't gotten too deep into her biography, but she was someone of significant privilege and significant influence um, for a woman in the 1940s. But for her to sort of say these things, I mean, this is a time when, you know, this was not long after, you know, a time period when a journalist even suggesting, you know, that, um, uh, that black men were being lynched under um, a false premise, right? That that could get, you know, people run out of town. That's what happened to Ida B. Wells. You know, she wrote about lynching honestly and she was threatened with lynching. And, you know, her, um, uh, her paper was burned to the ground. She had to leave, uh, she had to leave uh, Memphis because of that. So it's, you know, it's pretty bold for someone to say, especially for a white woman to say, I know the truth of what's happening because that is, there's just sort of this, you know, hair trigger um, of violence um, against anyone who would sort of be speaking the truth and basically revealing that, yeah, this is just about white racial dominance. It's not about actual like virtue. <laughs> and, and I think that there's a couple of things that both of you said that stood out to me is one, how late you came across her, right? And the fact that you're both white women from the North mm -hmm. and I'm a white guy from the South. And the fact that we didn't learn about her within formative years for one within P12, which would be a different kind of discussion, but then also within undergrad. Mm -hmm. And then not learning about her till later, maybe grad school or even later than that. Mm -hmm. So I keep thinking about the importance of learning about individuals like her, about um, James Dombrowski, about Virginia Durr, about the, the white anti-lynching church women in the South. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. who were, you know, arguing against lynching, right? Mm-hmm. Learning about these individuals who were from the South specifically, how that would have affected me as a Southerner. Because the narrative that we get all the time for the civil rights movement is, oh, there were the outside, the outside agitators coming in from the North, whites coming in from the North. Not that there were whites in the South thinking about these things and doing these things. One of the people I've talked with on the podcast is um, Joan Browning, who was one of the last freedom writers, and she was a white woman from Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. So those narratives, I think, are important, especially for us in the South. And the other thing that kind of stands out there that you're talking about, too, I think, is the ways that we kind of think about, as Lillian Smith put it, and as you said, Audrey, the sex sin segregation triptych. And that's kind of the way I phrase it, because she wrote about this explicitly in Killers of the Dream, and then she writes about it elsewhere, too. But she writes in Killers that, quote, the race, she calls it the race sex sin spiral. And this places white women on the pedestal, as you mentioned in your quote in essence, creating an image of purity out of her. And Smith also writes, there's two more quotes I want to, I want to read to you, but she also writes at the beginning of that three ghost chapter, which we have up on our, on our lib guide, our library guide. If you, if you just look for Lillian E. Smith, lib, L-I-B-G-U-I-D-E, it'll pop up. But the three ghost chapters up there and kind of questions to think about with it. But at the opening of that chapter, she writes, it was not long in the little Southerner's life before the lessons taught him as a Christian a white man, an American, a Puritan began to contradict each other. And then I found this quote too. I was looking for that pedestal quote you mentioned, Audrey, but I was looking, I didn't find it, but I found this one in the women that I kind of wanted to read. It's a little bit longer. She says, she writes this, in the name of sacred womanhood, of purity, of preserving the home, lecherous old men and young ones reeking with impurities who had violated the home since they were 16 years old, whipped up lynchings, organized clans, burned crosses, aroused the poor and ignorant to wild excitement by an obscene perversion, perverse um, imagery describing the menace of Negro men hiding behind every Cypress wanting to rape our women. And thinking about that with purity culture, this leads me to think about something else too. Um, The Nazis and Hitler's kind of rhetoric about the black terror on the Rhine. That was the big kind of push there with the French having Senegalese troops in the Rhineland and this kind of whole terror that popped up about the Senegalese troops raping the German white women. That was one of the things he whipped up in the early stages of, of course, his rise to power. And that made international news. That that, That reached over here too, from everything too. But they point out, Smith points out the intersections between sex sin and segregation so the ways that race religion and purity culture or sex work together so you've talked about them a little bit but can you speak about these intersections a little bit more and how they continue today that's a really broad question yeah sure i can start that one it's so i can so this is the question i've been sitting with um and trying to sort of you know find a, a through line you know, from sort of the history of lynching to 
um, to evangelical purity culture. And um, because I think there's a, most people start the history of evangelical purity culture at the earliest, the late 1970s in the formation of uh, the moral majority um, and with its height being in the 90s and the 2000s. Um, but but that grew out of these fierce debates around sex education, especially fears of the increase in um, white, um, uh, white adolescent birth rates. And, um, and so there was a, a lot of alarm about that. Um, and uh, in the early 1990s, Charles Murray, um, uh, conservative, um, a uh, sociologist who did a lot of work for the Heritage Foundation wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal called The Coming White Underclass. And it was about the increase in white out of wedlock births and saying, you know, if this doesn't stop, if we don't, um, if we don't pursue the national, on a national level, the notion of personal responsibility and self-sufficiency, the white, um, you know, white life is going to become as demoralized as black life in the United States. And of course, at that point, the Moynihan Report from the 1960s, which had described um, black families as delinquent because they were female, you know, predominantly female headed households like that lasted all the way to the 90s and informed even the 96 welfare reform bill. So, um, so that's where I've been looking to really see this influence because of the, the racialized and sexualized stereotypes, especially about black women's sexuality have been so, um, and, of, and of course, in order to have that, you have to have white women's sexuality be a certain thing, right? So these ideologies are still so incredibly powerful. Um, I see it also in the way that we, that there are, there's a certain need for a good survivor story um, for the right kind of, um, that survivors are supposed to act a certain way. So when we see stories of abuse, right? Um, someone who is, um, has been victimized by sexual abuse is expected to act in a certain way. Um, and if she doesn't, then, you know, she, uh, and of course the good survivor is, is a white woman, right? Because that's the one who can gain sympathy, who has that sort of, um, that built-in right to security, to safety. And, um, and so we can still see that when we look at the conversations about, um, about sexual assault, especially in places like the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, all the stories there are, um, are of white women. And of course, many of those white women were sort of put in this category of being a bad survivor, right? Um, because they were challenging the institution. So I think these are ways that, and I, and you can tell I'm still trying to pull some threads together, but ways we think about um, white women's sexual innocence, right? Which is, which is one of the elements of the lynching myth, which Ida B. Wells, you know, uh, 
articulated for us. And I, um, and I, an evangelical purity culture is still very much running on those same logics. And, and this is why Smith's, I think, reading, writing is so important because it just reveals it in such profound ways. Um, and of course, this is what, three decades after Ida B. Wells. Um, and so by that point, you do have white women realizing that lynching was, is a problem and they need to organize around it, which, you know, when Wells was writing, she was actually getting an intense amount of pushback. So it's interesting. And actually, I have a question about that, if we could come back to that, uh, Matthew, that you might be able to help me with. Um, but it's so yeah so it's really around these mythologies of white women's sexual innocence and um which is rooted in sort of these 19th century ideologies and this is both and and we've talked about this mostly as a sexual and gendered ideal but it is first and foremost a racialized ideal. Um, and I think that's what Smith does really well in her work. And this is what I'm also seeing um, as part of the function of evangelical purity culture is to reinstate that. And we see numerous places where white women are sort of framed in nationalistic um, contexts so that white womanhood becomes the signifier of the innocent nation state. Yeah. And while you're talking, there's, again, a lot of things I'm thinking about, but you're talking about Ida B. Wells and, of course, her campaign and her work against lynching. And it always reminds me of Rebecca Felton's quote. I don't know if y'all have heard that before, but Rebecca Felton was the first woman, of course, I think to the Senate or maybe the House, and she was from Georgia. But in 1898, and I'm reading from Wikipedia here, but this is the quote, um, Felton gave a speech in Tybee, Georgia, which is down near Savannah, to members of the Georgia State Agriculture Society. She urged an increase in lynchings in order to protect rural white women from being raped by black men. And this is the quote that she gave. This is August 11th, 1898. When there is not enough religion in the pulpit. So again, that connection between church, sin, and sex, right? Um, to organize a crusade against sin, nor justice in the courthouse to promptly punish crime, nor manhood enough in the nation to put a sheltering arm around innocence and virtue, if it needs lynching to protect woman's dearest possession from the ravening human beast, then I say lynch a thousand times a week if necessary. So I'm reminded of that, but I'm also reminded, I'm trying to find the quote. I don't know if I can find it. I'm reminded of a quote from, from Hitler. In, I think it was in Mein Kampf, where he talks about the threat of Jews and the threat of Jews being around every corner, the Jewish boy or man waiting in the bushes to rape the German Aryan woman. It's the same exact language being used, of course, there as, as here. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really kind of important thing to, to keep thinking about too. I think I'm actually may have the quote here, but I, I don't, I apologize. And then of course the Nuremberg laws were directly against the intermarriage between Jews and Aryan, quote unquote, Germans, really? right? I didn't know that. Well, and other things too. So what was the question you had as well? Yeah. So it's about, this is a question I've had for a long time and I've never had a chance to look in it. Right. So I have spent most of my time looking at the debate between Francis Willard and Ida B. Wells. 
right? Willard was another, uh, you know, was the leader of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, right? The most powerful um, women's organization in the United States. And she absolutely refused to believe Ida B. Wells's reports about lynching. And she said, no, no, this is not, you know, and she, and in fact, took great umbrage when Wells basically said, you know, if there are like white women and black men having sex, turns out it's actually consensual. <laughs> and, and Willard was like, no, that cannot be true. Like you're impugning half the human race when you say that, like she just, you know, cause, and she couldn't accept that because so much of her work was rooted in the idea of white women's moral authority which came through their innate sexual purity, right? And so uh, Wells is just blowing that up. And all right? this all this kind of goes back, I think you mentioned Audrey in one of your pieces, but it goes back to the cult of domesticity. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Which yeah. is basically that the woman, of course, should be pure and virtuous, should be the, the head of the household. And this was, of course, early revolutionary, 1800s, yeah. late 1700s kind of, you know, idea. It was, it was a little later. I was, would you say it was later, Audrey? It's been a while since I've looked at it. That's why I probably yeah. missed it. I mean, the cult of true womanhood, which was coined by Barbara Welter, the historian Barbara Welter in the 70s, she looked at it from, I think, like the 40s through the 60s. So, um, and it's more of a Victorian. Yeah, I'm thinking cult of true womanhood, I yeah. apologize. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so it's interesting that, you know, so there was so much resistance to Wells, right? But then by the 1940s, like, so when did the, um, the women's anti-lynching campaign start in the South, like the, in the 40s, right? I, I think it, Smith's talking about earlier, I don't know. That's still something I need to look into. Yeah. So, but so what I've wondered is that there had to be a significant shift then um, in terms of understandings of white womanhood in order for white women to actually be like, oh yeah, this is totally false, right? Because they're 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 seemingly stepping down off their pedestal and saying, like, no, 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 this is this is all a lie where, you know, th these are trumped up charges on our behalf and they're not true. So, um, so I'm wondering, you know, if ideals about womanhood changed in those 20, 30 years um, that, that got white women being like, okay, we are gonna come out against, right? This is what Wells was doing forever. And she couldn't get white women to join her campaign. Um, so my question is like, what changed? Um, and was it, you know, this, this pedestal thing that, that kind of came tumbling down? Like that's the, so that's the question I have. So if any of your listeners have been working on this, I'd be very interested uh, to know. I'm sure, I'm sure there are. I was going to say, it reminds me of um, Rose Gladney's quote that the most twisted and deranged individual is the white woman on the pedestal. Mm -hmm. she says that in the in Lauren Smith documentary but I want to do this real quick before I get to you Audrey I looked up the cult of true womanhood cult of domesticity I think they're interchangeable yeah. and it, it did start in the 1800s specifically with um 
I can never pronounce it, but Godie's or Goody's lady, lady's Bobby, book, right? Yeah, who kind of reinforced it. But there were four things. And I used to teach this. I haven't taught early American lit in a while. So that's why I haven't totally remembered. But the four cardinal virtues, as Welter points out, are piety, purity, submission, and domesticity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So how do we see those kind of things within this intersection because we can talk about the cult of true woman and domesticity because because you mentioned it, Audrey. How do you see that today? Just in one of the pieces, I think, that you that you wrote about James Dobson and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, before I answer that, can I go in and fill in a few points That's that I was fine. thinking about when Sarah was speaking? So, you know, I really appreciated you both mentioning the anti-Semitism piece because I think that that is really important. And, you know, when we think about evangelical purity culture, sometimes that gives us a short attention span when these purity myths really do go way back, especially if you consider Catholic history. I mean, for centuries, the church would put forth these little virgin martyr saints, all of whom died trying to protect their virginity from an evil other. It could have been a pagan, but if that's the case, whatever the otherness is, it's it's very heavily emphasized. Sh- shout know? out, shout out real quick to Candida Moss's book. Um, oh yes, about uh, I myth, forgot the title of it. The myth of persecution. Yes, and she is a Catholic scholar, and she talks about how highly stylized uh, these accounts are. In some cases, they're even plagiarized from mm-hmm. other traditions. Most of them have been debunked even by Christian scholars. Um, so you have folks like Maria Goretti, who was this little girl who, you know, allegedly was um, died because she refused to lose her virginity to this pagan other. Mm-hmm. There are many such stories about children who were assaulted by Jewish people. Um, there's also the blood libel myth, mm-hmm. which is that um, Jews prey upon white Christian children to uh, use their blood to make the bread that they use for Passover. (laughs) And uh, so they go way back. And, you know, one thing that I wonder about a lot is how much purity culture in the U.S. is tapping into that archive, not least because um, Jews were conceived as having black blood in them. So, I mean, today we think of Jews as being white, but that wasn't always the case. And I wonder if in the South, there was more um, slippage between Jews and black bodies, which would make the, um, you know, the purity culture that, that Lillian Smith is talking about more natural of a flow from these these myths that are just so deeply embedded in the Christian imagination. Well, um, I'm thinking with that, I mean, the Klan went was against Jews and Catholics as well. So I'm wondering if that actually happens too, because one case that I looked up was in um, Marouge, Louisiana, near Monroe. Mm-hmm. And it was actually, I think, two Jewish men who were lynched. And of course, Leo Frank's, and that was 1922, Leo Frank's lynching in Georgia was, I don't remember what year he yeah. was lynched and he, he was Jewish. And 
the accusation against 1915, the accusation against him, of course, was that he raped a, a white girl. And it turned out that it was actually, I think, a black worker who raped her, but they lynched him. Yeah. So I think these intersections are important to think about, too. Yeah. And Sarah said, you know, that there is a good victim and the good victim, of course, is always white. But the good victim is also someone who's been perpetrated by a bad person. Mm -hmm. And this this became because we're uninterested in um, white women's pain if it's coming from white men. (laughs) And this really became visible in the coverage of the 10 year old from Ohio. You know, you know, we had certain news outlets going on for a year about groomers and pedophiles. Finally, they're presented with, you know, a girl who's presumably, I imagined her to be white, so presumably a good victim, but they were uninterested in it until they learned that it was from an undocumented person. And then her story became newsworthy. So, I mean, I think like, you know, what we're all saying, what we all know is that the construction of innocence always depends on having that evil, monstrous other. So that gets into discussions and we could go off the rails here with this, but that gets into discussions of the use of language, especially within Christianity and elsewhere of white and black. Mm -hmm. White is good, black is evil, right? I think about that a lot, too, in the ways that we use language to construct our meanings. Mm -hmm. So within that kind of discussion, that kind of fits into me a little bit, too. And white is pure. Yeah. And there's a really good book by Richard Beck, who's a psychologist. And the book is called Unclean. Are you familiar with it, Sarah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's so good because it explores how all of this is happening on a psychological level. And basically what Beck argues is that when you have a Christianity that is so heavily emphasized on purity myths, for instance, washed in the blood of the lamb, that kind of language that is repeated in your prayers and your music and all of the stuff, when you think about expressing your Christianity in terms of purity, it's almost inevitable for you to extend that idiom to race, um, to other kinds of boundary keeping between people. And he says, he uses the word, you're always going to be swimming upstream. If your Christianity is so focused on, on purity, you're always going to be having to, um, to work hard to see that the way you think about salvation and Jesus isn't then extended to the others around you. Francis Willard had an essay Uh, that she wrote for the philanthropist, which was the um, uh, periodical for the um, uh, National Purity uh, Congress. And the the title, the headline of it was The White Life for Two. Mm. And, And I guess the, you know, adherence to purity would wear white ribbons, which I think was also the suffrage, you know, a suffrage symbol. So there was a lot of overlap now, uh, overlap there, but, but that's such a, but that's such a, you know, and I've used that title a couple of times, you know, of what, what actually purity is about, you know, that it is very much about racial purity. And of course, when you look at that in the context of, you know, sort of the growing focus on, um, 
on the racial sciences and like just the <laughs> the racial sciences are are so overwrought with the need to determine the hierarchy of the races. So can we can we get into that? Because yeah. that's something that Audrey points out in a lot of her pieces and a piece from 2021. So from last year, Audrey, you write that, quote, a lesser known source of inspiration for modern white evangelicals and James Dobson, who I just realized was born where I'm from in Shreveport, which shocked me. I didn't know that. But white evangelicals and Dobson in particular, this lesser known inspiration is eugenics. To my knowledge, Smith doesn't directly address eugenics. However, I would say throughout her work, she speaks about the dignity and equality of all, no matter an individual's physical or mental capabilities. Um, she called the Brown v. Board decision, quote, every child's Magna Carta, because it opened the door, not just for racial desegregation, but also access for all to education. Yeah. For for equal education. So can you speak some about your statement and specifically thinking back to what Sarah's talking about here with the rise of the eugenics movement, which of course is the late 1800s, early 1900s, and informed a lot of what happened mm -hmm. during that period and informed World War II mm -hmm. and still informs us. Yeah. So when Sarah was speaking, I was thinking about Terrence Keel's book, Divine Variation, which shows, shows about how Christian theology becomes racial science. And I'm mentioning it because it's the opposite of example of eugenics, which we think of as being a secular project that is adopted by Christians like Dobson, which I'll speak to in a moment. But Terence Keel is interested in how these theological ideas of racism, specifically that white people are closer to God, get taken up as science. Uh, so maybe it's not God who made white people closer to him. Maybe it's nature that just made um, white people more powerful, smarter, X, Y, and Z. And so it's basically just um, a form of secular creationism is what he says. Um, and it, it's, it's a really good foundational book uh, showing how junk theology becomes junk science. The flip side of that is that junk science can become junk theology because people are happy to borrow from each other when it comes to upholding white power, even if they claim to be you know, at loggerheads with each other. So what happens with eugenics is, um, at least in the US, it really takes off in the early part of the 20th century. And the form that we know mostly is forced sterilization. Um, there were fears about black migration, the movement of people from the South to the Northern cities, and also about immigration from Asia, from Eastern Europe. And there's this panic about the virility of the white race. And so there are efforts to, um, to, to forcibly sterilize people of color, um, immigrants, and this surprises people, but at least in the, in the first few centuries, it was a lot of white people. And that's because um, if you were uh, sexually promiscuous, you were thought to be not a good mother of the race. Um, you also risked uh, crossing the color line. So diluting the purity of the race in that way. But of course, forced sterilization be eventually began to be conceived as too close to what was happening in in Nazi Germany. Of course, we know why it's because, you know, our eugenics and Jim Crow was exported to Germany. 
And after that, the focus shifts from forcibly sterilizing the, the quote unquote unfit to promoting uh, the reproduction of the fit. So the fit is white, able-bodied, middle-class white people. And one figure who I wrote about in my first book, The Unfit Heiress, is Paul Popino, who is an atheist in California who pivoted from promoting forced sterilization and spreading it in California and other states and even corresponding with uh, leaders in the Third Reich to then uh, shifting towards the white family. And he opens an institute called the American Institute of Family Relations. And it's all about promoting marital harmony, uh, discouraging divorce and encouraging reproduction. So he would um, discourage you know, pornography use because he thought of that as something that made a marriage less sticky and um, you know, discouraging women from going to college. So it's all about having women stay home, adhere to strict uh, sex gender norms, have lots of babies. And it's there that uh, he hires James Dobson. And this is not well known. It's not in Dobson's biography. I think that his authorized biography by Dale Buss, I think he's taken a lot of pains to cover his tracks. But this is where he cuts his teeth and he learns essentially to discourage interracial marriage on the basis of it being a compatibility issue. So that sounds better, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's something I learned from Hilda Lovedale Stevens book, Family Matters, which I definitely want to name because people can learn a lot more about um, Dobson and his early work in her book. So Dobson is encouraging these strict gender norms and basically regurgitating Popino in the Los Angeles Times and in his work for the Institute. But when he goes off on his own and he opens focus on the family, he baptizes all of this. So suddenly all of this archive that he's gotten from an atheist, he tries to pass off as biblical family values. And it's precisely by distinguishing himself from secular psychologists, people like Freud, who he greatly admired, that he's able to gain the trust of the church going masses. So it's, it's interesting that he has to gain credibility as a psychologist, which is suspect with evangelical circles by saying he's not like Freud and all of them uh, even though focus on the family is a Christian variant of the American Institute of Family Relations. So all of that reminds me, going back to what you were talking about with Terrence Keel and junk science becoming junk theology and junk theology becoming junk science and all that stuff. It reminds me of Bruce Dane's That Hideous Monster of the Mind, which is a book about kind of the ways that race kind of was constructed in the early 1800s from the enlightenment in America and elsewhere and talks about all this and specifically like, you know, religious wise, the curse of ham and all these kind of narratives. So we see these things going back and forth. I think that's a really kind of interesting thing. And this thread goes back much further than you, than we're talking about here. As you mentioned, even with the discussions and the stories of the martyrs, you know, so there's ways to kind of think about this and the way they're reframed. And I think the important thing too, that you mentioned too, is the way that language is reframed. Mm -hmm. 
So instead of it being that where you're going to mix blood with a black man and a white woman or a white woman and a, or, or a white man and a black woman, it's just, they're not compatible. Mm-hmm. That's a totally different kind of, like you said, a totally different framing than that other. And this leads me into kind of the last question because Sarah, and this is connected, I think with your project, you started the after purity project Mm-hmm. And that project collects and tells individual stories about evangelical purity culture. And I don't think we've actually defined what purity culture is. Sure. I meant to ask that earlier and I didn't, I didn't do that, but we need, we need to find what purity culture is. It, it is connected to the cult of domesticity and true womanhood and all that too. But I think there's more to it, but the after purity project collects and tells the stories about evangelical purity culture in the context of the history of evangelicalism racism, sexuality, and U.S. politics. So can you tell us a little bit, kind of define purity culture for us? We're being bad educators because we didn't do that earlier. And can you kind of tell us a little bit about the project and how it relates to what we've been talking about today with with Smith and and everything else? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm just looking at my Twitter because (laughs) the other day I I actually wrote something and I was like, oh, I... I think that's the definition that works. And um, and I had never, because I, I asked my research participants all the time, you know, how do you, how would you explain this to someone who didn't grow up in it? And um, and I realized that I don't have, I, you know, that's always a stumper for me. So sorry for the pause here as I'm scrolling through and I'm like, I said it so well. well I, I'm looking, I'm looking through your Twitter feed while you're looking for that. And I love the fact that you're retweeting the manual and her friend. Oh my friend. goodness. Yeah. I, I think they just, I think it just blew up like over the past few days, but the manual's hilarious. Well, and did you, and I just want to say this, this, so this young woman does not have health insurance. So I did not know that. He actually said something like, Oh, Hey, maybe now I can actually get health insurance. So Let's go, America. Let's give Taylor health insurance because <laughs> she has made all. She and um, Emmanuel. Yeah, she's putting she a hat on Emmanuel's head. The emu made uh, the hat. Oh my gosh, his little hat. I yeah yeah. So um, so yeah um. Oh, you were talking about Mars Hill on the Christianity Day podcast. Oh, oh yes. Oh yeah, yeah Mars Hill is always. Um, well, well, why, why are you looking for that? Can oh, oh I, I think the thing that you posted, Audrey, that I shared with you earlier, the the pastor. Can you kind of talk about that a second? Because yeah. I think it relates to kind of all this too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was circulated a year ago. I didn't rewatch it when you just sent it to me, but it was a pastor basically saying that women are supposed to be trophy wives. Was that it? That was it. It was um, trying to look for the guy's name. Yeah. And I think like Stuart, Stuart Allen Clark, I don't know where he's at. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me so much of Popano, who would put out manuals about how women were supposed to stay in shape and to be pretty and to he actually hired Arnold Cagle to craft an exercise for women to stay fit. And mm-hmm. This is when Kegels were born. And he said that women could, this is Popano, uh, do Kegels while they're vacuuming so that when their husband came home, the house would be sparkling and she would be primed for intimacy. (laughs) 
were kegels supposed to were they supposed to help with fertility um i didn't get that impression i just thought you know it's supposed to keep you tight okay yeah so that that it increases his 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 pleasure for his pleasure right Right. which all makes the marriage stickier right he's happy but that all leads to the purity culture too because part of the purity culture is you know virginity Mm-hmm. and the maintaining of virginity and the maintaining of that yeah and that's where the white womanhood comes in too right because yeah. mm-hmm. i think of things like true love weights and you know promise rings and yeah. never was involved in any of those kind of ceremonies i mean true love weights i was when growing up but yeah, yeah. never any of the maybe because i'm not a, a a woman or a girl either but the um the purity ceremonies or the i forgot what they're called but where the, where the dad gives the daughter away or they, yeah. whatever, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. Very incestuous. Yes. No. Yeah. Um, I have one more fun thing about kegels if we want to stay on that. <laughs> so I actually had a colleague, you know, being a woman in academia is difficult. Um, and you know, I think one of my greatest professional fears, which has happened is, is crying in inappropriate places. And so I was talking to a colleague of mine about that once. And I said, how do I go into this and not cry? And she said, she said, kegels. She said, if you do kegels, um, that will keep you from crying. And apparently this is tried and true wisdom. So anyone with a vagina, very proud. Good to know. This is, this is how we, this is how we survive patriarchy. Um, okay. I found it. I found it. So this is what I, yeah. So this is what I wrote, um, when I was doing some writing last week and I was like, Hey, I think I just nailed it. Um, white evangelicals deployed racial and sexual ignorance. So the concept of racial ignorance comes from the sociologist, Jennifer Mueller, and I'm sort of transposing it, um, to also be about Uh, sexual ignorance, right? So white evangelicals deployed racial and sexual ignorance, marked it as virtuous, and marketed it as the narrative of adolescent faith development. This is what I am referring to when I speak and write about evangelical purity culture. So that's, um, but this idea of, um, you know, Mueller talks about uh, racial ignorance, not as a form, and ignorance not as not knowing, but as a deliberate um, creation of non-knowledge. And, and I think that really gets into the psychology of whiteness in, I, I think, a really profound way. And she's sort of working with the rubrics of, um, of colorblindness. And, um, and so white um, so white racial ignorance is sort of a subset of that, but that, that it's cultivated. And of course, we've seen that. And I think all of the, the tension and pushback to what people think is critical race theory is just that, because it's challenging the privilege of white racial ignorance. Like, we don't have to think about this. And so as I've gotten into you know, as I've studied purity culture for so many years and seeing the way that that really promotes sexual ignorance as a virtue, right? And again, it's not a lack of knowledge. It's a particular 
form of knowledge, a particular way of talking about sex that's not actually about sex. It's not actually giving any information. It's just putting certain moral frameworks around it. And so, um, but moral frame, frameworks that don't allow people to actually develop decision-making skills. It just tells them these are the decisions you must make. So in that sense, it's also promoting this form of non-knowledge. So well, I think impurity culture, you know, kind of brings both of those together. Well, that gets into the other thing too, that we talked about a little bit before we got on the air is the importance of teaching and the fact that critically thinking through these things is what's important instead of just having somebody relate to the information. Because what you were saying there, that backlash against CRT, the new backlash now from the same guy who promoted the CRT backlash, of course, is dealing with gender. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yep. so it's, it's continuing and going on. But what, what is the After Purity Project and what do you what is the After Purity Project? Yeah, so um, this started um, was something I wanted to do after my first book came out, which was about um, the history of, uh, of sexual purity as related to evangelical political power. Um, and, and I knew there were lots of people who had experiences like I did growing up in purity culture and um, and many of these people were telling their stories, you know, and this started, I think, in earnest around 2013. And so I've, I've since been sort of tracing and just following the growth of this discourse, what I call a post-purity movement. That is people who come out of purity culture and are like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> if I can, I don't know, can I drop the F-bomb on here? But but really, I mean, so much anger and confusion and, um, and, and seeing that and saying like, okay, I, I should talk to people. And, and so I, um, I need, there were a lot of things that needed to fall into place in order for that to happen. Um, and they all fell into place and I'm like, okay, I'm doing this. So for the last two years, I've been interviewing people. I've interviewed about 60 people um, who have uh, who have experience in purity culture? Um, it's it's overwhelmingly white women um, who have signed up, um, which I think has given me a really good opportunity to really dig into the the cultural meanings of white womanhood and sort of line that up next to women's actual lived experiences, um, and uh, and so it's been like there's been a lot of um it's been interesting because there's out of it has come a lot of community building you know because this is part of it's also part of this larger evangelical movement of people leaving the um evangelical churches and that especially uh, became you know kind of the wave really kind of grew in 2016 with the election of trump um and so there's all sorts of pieces in here so what I am trying to do you know people have their stories and oftentimes they're very what I would call domestic stories in that they're about you know people struggle to women's struggles especially to embrace their sexuality you know I've talked to women who didn't know that they were taught that sex was not supposed to be pleasurable right and they were in marriage you know they were married and which so- is something Lillian talks about yes exactly exactly um 
you know, I've interviewed women who said they didn't the first time they experienced an orgasm was giving birth. Um, and so that's, you know, so this kind of, so this is why disembodiment, right? Disembodiment is the overwhelming theme of these interviews of, of ways that women have just been um, really struggled to, to connect with their bodies, to their sexual desire, to feel like those are good things. And certainly it's not just white women. Um, and, but because of the demographics that my project has drawn, most likely because I am a white woman, um, it's, um, it's become sort of one of the prominent pieces. But so Brad Onishi, um, who is also studying purity culture, specifically purity culture masculinity, just last night, he posted a question on Twitter about asking men to share about their experiences in purity culture. And that's been really interesting uh, to read as well. And it's, and it's, and it is different, um, but it's a, it, but it's also, uh, you know, the, the, there's a kind of, there's a different kind of pressure that's ex that was exerted on young men. Um, so, uh, so yeah, but there's something really, uh, there's, there's so many interesting things to pull out there. And part of it is just, I think there are so many people still struggling who don't know they're part of a larger movement, right? And so just wanting people to feel like, hey, this was not, this is not about something you did wrong, right? You aren't being punished for something, right? This was actually part of a broad political project. Um, and one that was in a large, in a, you know, a project of, you know, what now I would call a white Christian nationalist project that really was attempting to prioritize the white Christian family as, you know, as the foundation of the nation. Um, well, it takes oh, the place of the nuclear family. Right, right. And the same, I mean, right. So you have, um, and I was actually just looking um, as Audrey was talking about eugenics. I remembered this. So the Patriot Front, um, so those guys, right, who are causing all sorts of havoc at this point. Um, they've they've been on my campus, um, trying to recruit students, and yep, yep, they're showing up on college campuses, and, and institu my institution didn't say anything about it. Like what? So. Um, like what, what's the plan folks <laughs> like they are coming for our students um, but one of their slogans is stronger families for a stronger nation right so they are using straight up eugenic language and I was looking we could end on this but I was looking back over killers of the dream and in the first chapter when I was a child where she kind of talks about why she's writing the book she says this and this kind of I think links all of this together I do not remember how or when, but by the time I had learned that God is love, that Jesus is his son and came to give us more abundant life, that all men are brothers with a common father. I also knew that I was better than a black person, that all black folks have their place and must be kept in it, that sex has its place and must be kept in it, that a terrifying disaster would befall the South if I ever treated a black as my social equal. And as terrifying a disaster would befall my family, if ever I were to have a baby outside of marriage. I had learned that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that we might have segregated churches in which it was my duty to worship each Sunday and on Wednesday at evening prayers. 
I have learned that white Southerners are hosp hospitable, courteous, tactful people who treat those of their own group with consideration and who as carefully segregate from all the richness of life, quote, for their own good and welfare. 13 million people whose skin is colored a little differently from our own. So she wraps it all together there, right? With these things are interconnected. So let's leave it at that. How can people follow you to learn more about the research you're doing? Um, yeah, so I am on Twitter, um, at Mosslinger Sarah, the After Purity Project. Um, I am working on, uh, I'm working on a website um, and hoping um, to do some blogging as I'm, because I'm, I'm currently working on a book manuscript. So I want to sort of get little snippets out. Um, yeah, the other thing, if people are interested in deeper conversation, I am um, running a seminar um, called Purity, Race, and Disembodiment, which Audrey has participated in. We did our a first run of it in May, and it was really incredible. Amazing people, um, but yeah. So this is so it's being um, hosted by another podcast, Straight White American Jesus. So if you Google Straight White American Jesus seminars, you will find um, information about it. So it starts. We're starting this one in the middle of August. It'll meet four. Thursdays um, from the middle of August to the middle of September um, would be delighted to have um, any of your listeners come join us any of your students come join us we had a range last time we had PhDs to undergraduates um, we had mental health professionals we had historians um, it was uh, it was really uh, really remarkable and I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Audrey C. Farley. I'm working on a book now called Girls and Their Monsters, which is about a set of quadruplets who all went mad, were diagnosed with schizophrenia and studied by NIMH for the genetics of mental illness. And I am interested in their story for precisely the things that we've been talking about. I'm interested in how they became these icons of whiteness, how their parents were obsessed with their uh, sexual purity because they were representatives of the nation. They participated in a lot of singing and dancing contests and would sing about Christopher Columbus and the founding of America and Jesus. And uh, I actually very recently learned that their father, who was a constable, uh, his police buddies had terrorized a family in their home city of Lansing for many years. And this family appears in the newspapers often as a foil to them. And so while we've got our, you know, white girls who are representative of virtue and America and all these good qualities, there's this other family who's quote unquote uppity Negroes. Um, and this family turned out to be Malcolm X's family. <laughs> yeah. So that was a pretty big find for me. Yeah. And, and I've been thinking and, and he and his mother were also diagnosed with schizophrenia on the basis that they were paranoid of whites. Um, and they, they have been, uh, terrorized by, um, an organization called the black Legion, which was an offshoot of the Klan. 
Um, and so, you know, I've just been thinking so much about what I mentioned earlier, which is that innocence always has to have an other. Um, and I, I want to thank Sarah and her seminar and just do a further push for that because of the disembodiment piece, which had not been on my mind, even though I'm thinking about uh, purity culture and sex and racism and what it does to the body. Um, because schizophrenia is very much, uh, some would say, uh, a condition of disembodiment. And I had totally missed that angle of it. And taking Sarah's seminar just really helped me to push the manuscript in new directions and think further about that, which I believe really helps to incorporate uh, disability and, um, and just a, a, another drop down menu into this conversation. Um, so yes, that, that was a long answer. Hopefully long. <laughs> I've got to read some of it. It's really, really good. All right. Well, thank y'all for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.